Hi everybody, we hope you're having a wonderful day. Welcome back to Silicon Street, a podcast on venture capital, technology, and entrepreneurship geared towards college students and young professionals. If you're new to the podcast, go ahead and join the rest of our listeners by following us on Spotify and LinkedIn to stay up to date with our episodes. My name is Alex Tolman, and my co-host Connor Hollihan and I are very excited to introduce Mike Sales as our guest for this episode. Mike is the founder and CEO of Fresh Street, an innovative grocery company looking to specialize in grocery to go. The company is looking to create the most efficient and seamless grocery pickup process by creating grocery stores that exclusively do pickup. Prior to founding Fresh Street, Mike worked as an investment banking analyst at Houlihan Loki for two years before moving into private equity with El Catterton. While at El Catterton, Mike worked on the operations side of the portfolio companies they invested in and spent a lot of time with Vans Natural Foods and Ferrara, which might give some insight into the move towards the grocery business. Today, we're going to speak with Mike about his career background and this maiden entrepreneurial voyage into Fresh Street. Without further ado, Mike, we are super excited to welcome you to the show. How has everything been going? It's been busy. There's never a dull moment uh, in the startup world, but uh, thanks for having me. Right. No, we're super excited to get going. So, um, Mike, why don't we just start out by talking about uh, you know, your experience in, in private equity? What made you interested in that uh, coming out of, out of college? And you know, how did you end up in the banking industry and ultimately at El Caterton? Yeah, so um, when I was at Notre Dame, I was a uh, finance and poli-sci double major. Um, and I was all set up to go to law school. So I took the LSAT um, and figured that uh, doing investment banking for a couple of years out of school would help bolster the resume for, for law school. And then when I got into it uh, and I saw what lawyers did, I realized very quickly that wasn't for me. Um, so there was a kind of a quick pivot there. And as, you know, as I thought about what I wanted to do leaving banking, um, you know, one of my big things is like, as you think about your career, you, you know, you should always start at the finish line and work your way backwards. And so, you know, I kind of wrapped my brain around wanting to be a CEO. Um, and so as I was exploring uh, leaving banking, I was fortunate that uh, the folks at Catterton had reached out to me about working uh, with one of their portfolio companies uh, at the time, which was uh, Yo Crunch Yogurt, which is a, a yogurt business um, that was uh, based in Connecticut and had a sales and marketing office in Chicago. And so they approached me about going to work there. And uh, you know, it was just a very timely thing for me, um, wanting to you know, start down the path of, of being a CEO. Um, it was a great kind of entry point to be able to come in at a business that was private equity owned in a you know, director level role, working in business development, working really closely with the CEO. Um, and so that's, that's kind of how I got my, my path in the PE world. And then once, um, once we sold Yo Crunch to, to Dannon, um, I was able to shift over and kind of help Vans with, with their sale process uh, to Hillshire Brands, which was subsequently acquired by Tyson Foods, um, and then started working at uh, Ferrara Candy, which at the time was about a billion dollars in, in revenue uh, based in Chicago and kind of stayed with that business in a variety of different roles and functions until ultimately we sold uh, that business to the Ferrero Group. And so that's kind of been my, my trajectory. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic background. And I'm, I'm curious, a lot of people, especially from Notre Dame and you know, other people who study finance, out of college, they do the two-year banking stint and then you know, they think about what they wanna do after that. A lot of people go into private equity, like the traditional investing side. 
obviously you went into more of the operational side. Could you talk a little bit about what the decision process was to specifically do the operation side and how you saw kind of that line of work differ? Um, Cause obviously you're, you probably worked a little bit with the investment professionals, at least, you know, at the firm. So could you kind of like give some insight into that as people try to think about what they want to do? Yeah, I was actually, um, I was interviewing for like traditional private equity associate jobs uh, when this opportunity came up um, because there is a lot of like uh, natural momentum to going to the investing side. That's where mm -hmm. the, there's a lot more available in that space um, because that is the um, more cookie cutter path. Um, so I will say I was, you know, one part lucky uh, that I was approached with it. Uh, but again, to me, it came back to, you know, if you want to be a CEO, right, if that's a thing for you, yeah. you know, then it's a pretty easy decision given the choice between, you know, working in an investing type role or an operating type role. Likewise, if I said, well, I want to be, you know, a partner at, uh, you know, a private equity fund someday, uh, not an operating one, but in, on the investing side, like it would have been very clear that, you know, the Catterton opportunity didn't make sense for me. So, um, you know, that's why I think having that sort of um, guidepost of saying, well, what is it that you want to do when you grow up and let that be, you know, what helps you frame your decisions. It'll, it'll make it more clear along the way what the right opportunities are for you. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And what do you think was the main things that you kind of learned from that experience being on the operational side there, you know, you mentioned you wanted to be a CEO. What, what did you learn from that experience that helped is currently helping you in, uh, as you are starting a company? Yeah, I think, um, you know, when you guys, when you guys leave Notre Dame, right, you will have great uh, kind of hard skills. Like you will be great at, a, if you're a finance major and you go through 10 classes, 10 finance classes and three accounting classes, like you're going to be pretty good with all that stuff. Um, and having those hard skills is great. and It'll help you be a great analyst or whatever at uh, your first job out of school and be really productive. Um, it is a completely different skill set to uh, be able to manage and lead a group of people. And I think that is the part that I probably struggled with the most out of the gates. Like when you're in investment banking, you're so busy. Everyone is super direct with you, uh, sometimes more direct than you would prefer. And like, but that is just like, that is the way the world works. And so you kind of get wired for two years, you know, times 80 hours plus a week. Like this is how people talk to each other. And then you kind of get outside that bubble and it's like, oh, actually no, like people are humans. And like, that's not how they talk to each other. And and so there's an element of like dialing it back a bit and figuring out, you know, how do you make people want to do things for you versus how, you know, telling someone to do something for you? Like those are two different things. Mm -hmm. um, leading a team is very different than being a great doer of things. And so it's kind of like that old adage of, you know, what gets you from A to B, mm -hmm. i.e. like being really productive and smart and hardworking and all those things isn't what gets you from B to C in terms of managing and leading a group of people. So. Yeah. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that's just kind of natural progression as you, especially as you move up into more of like a managerial role, whatever, whatever function or job you're in, right. You're, you have to manage people at some point. So obviously an important skill to learn. Um, we'd, we'd love to jump into, you know, the actual company Fresh Street. So 
could you maybe go into the origin of why you started the company? Is it just you just disliked going grocery shopping or you saw a unique opportunity? What what was the, you know, the moment where you were like, you know what, I'm going to do this? Yeah, I, you know, I, I think um, a lot of it's just stemmed from my own experience as a user of these things. So I'm very much a person, even pre-COVID, who views grocery shopping as a chore. So, you know, it's not like a thing I actively go seek to do. Um, so, if, you know, if you said that I had an hour and a half to go spend time doing something, that that wouldn't be very high on my list. So, um, <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> yeah. And so I think, you know, we've always been, as a family, uh, kind of at the forefront of online grocery shopping. And I think one of the things that COVID did was it accelerated this trend of online grocery shopping, but it really put its thumb on the fact that like the grocery industry really wasn't ready for it. Um, and there are some real structural issues with traditional retailers that prevent them from providing a great online grocery shopping experience. So the way I thought about it was like, well, if you had a blank sheet of paper and you could start over, you know, how would you design a great online grocery shopping experience? Knowing that, you know, that's where the consumer's going. Right over time, this is going to become increasingly a thing. Whether Fresh Street's the right concept or there's another concept that's better, that's where the consumer's going. Right. So you know, you kind of mm -hmm. start with the insight of, like, you know, I I have this vision of the world where like no one ever goes grocery shopping because it's something that can be automated because it isn't this great experiential thing. It's something that it can be automated and then therefore you can provide that time back to people so they can go use that time more productively doing something else, whether that's spending time with their kids or watching Notre Dame football or pretty much anything else, you, know, you can give people time and back in their day by providing a great online grocery shopping experience. So, you know, that's sort of like the vision, right? And then you'd say, all right, well, now we have a blank sheet of paper. How would we design it? And so, you know, for us, that's everything from website and app design to how data flows through it to the size of the physical infrastructure that we need itself to you know the pickup experience as well and it's you know, we talk a lot about affordable convenience it's like how do we decide this just frictionless very fast and easy experience um for people who are you know really for families who are on the go right that's like our our muse and so that's that's what we've been working towards awesome well um i think it's a really interesting space to to try and enter into because obviously there's some really big players like Target, Walmart, and other just kind of regional grocery chains that are, like you said, trying to adopt um, this kind of online pickup strategy through COVID. Um, but, you know, there's a, another unique player. I saw Opie, I think, or O-P-I-E is how you spell it. I'm not sure exactly mm -hmm. who they are, what they do. Um, but I was reading about the industry and it, and it seems like it's relatively competitive. But again, you know, if you could design something from the ground up, you can definitely make it better. But how yeah. do you really get the confidence to enter into this arena going against some of the biggest retailers, uh, you know, in, in the country, like Target, Walmart, and those who have so much more capital than you do at the moment. Yeah. Um, you know, the way I think about it is depending on which article you read, right. The U S grocery industry is close to a trillion dollars in size. Right. So, you know, we have one thing that's going for us that a lot of industries don't have, which is everybody has to eat. Like that's a great starting point, right? Everyone has to eat. So you know, then the question is, can we provide the best possible user experience? Because it's the only thing that we do. 
we are uniquely positioned to, to myopically focus on the user and give them every feature that they want. Because unlike a Walmart, we don't have 120,000 square foot super center already. Or unlike a Jewel in Chicago, we don't have a 60,000 foot grocery store already. Right. And so for us, we can say, hey, look, we want to be centrally located where, the, where our users are, but we want to just provide this great, fast, easy to use experience. And we're just going to be the absolute best at it. And that's all we're going to do. And we're not going to provide an in-store experience. And we're not going to mess around with the economics of delivery because there's too many fees and it's such a high variable cost business model. It's impossible for me to see how that ever scales. So it's like, we're just going to do this one thing and we're going to do it really, really well. And I think there's some clear consumer data that, you know, people are frustrated with the current options out there because, you know, I think some people like Target actually does it pretty well, but there are, there are a lot of other grocers, including Walmart, who just don't have this really user-friendly online experience yet. And right. there's a lot of things that are preventing them from getting there. Yeah. Well, I think that's a really interesting way to look at it. I think a lot of, you know, maybe individuals considering starting a company or, or you know, considering looking at an idea might write it off really early because like, oh, I'll get all these big um, competitors, people who already do it, can we really do it better than them? But like you said, like if you can, if you can try and provide something niche in a really huge market, you don't need to capture 20% of the market to really be successful, right? Yeah. And there's a, you know, there's a great uh, Amazon documentary actually about the whole Netflix blockbuster thing. Mm. And it's a great watch if you haven't seen it already. And I don't want to go that far yet. Cause like that, that's like pretty <laughs> aggressive, right. but I would say there are some dynamics there that are kind of in play here in that, you know, if you think about where blockbuster was, they had this market leadership position that, you know, they kind of got, uh, satisfied with the status quo and, and we're really focused on that core business. And by the time, you know, they reacted to what Netflix was doing, it was too late. Right. right. Although they did, they actually did build a pretty sizable digital business with and made some pretty terrible strategic decisions, but you know, it's sort of that same thing. Like Netflix could have looked at what Blockbuster was doing and said, you well, know, you know, even though it's a large marketplace, like there's some clear big players, like it's, it's just a bridge too far, but that's where I think this idea of focusing on the consumer, focusing on the user comes into play. Like if you think there's a real pain point that you can solve for someone, yeah. or you can provide a great experience that someone didn't even realize they needed until you provided it, you know, that's a way to create a market opportunity for the business. Certainly. Yeah, no, it's extremely important to think that way. But, you know, you know, imagine you're someone thinking that way, all right, you need some, some money to, to get it going and to, to uh, get it off the ground. And I was just reading, you guys recently closed a $4 million seed round. Um, and, you know, trying to get money is a big question, a big concern for a lot of first-time founders as well. So maybe could you give some insight into how you went about that process and how, you know, what maybe you did that you think made you guys successful um, in raising that $4 million? Yeah, yeah. So I would say that, um, one thing I have learned in this world is uh, you're never done fundraising. You're <laughs> always fundraising. Whether you're, for, whether you're actually raising money at that moment, like you are always going out and networking and meeting people. And it is, it is arguably the most exhausting part of this because 
you're going to talk to a lot of people where you you get the vibe right away that this isn't going to be a fit for them, but you have to trudge through the whole presentation. Right. Um, and there's also a certain level of exhaustion with like telling about the business the same way over and over and over and over again. Um, because it's not like a super high yield business, right? It's not like, you know, you talk to 20 people and 15 of them invest. It's, it's much lower than that. And so you have to cast a pretty broad net. Um, you know, fortunately for me, uh, we actually never even talked to any VCs for that seed round because wow. I had been um, able to, you know, kind of just leverage my network that I had built over the last 10 plus years. Uh, and really we raised money it was family, friends, and some people that I've, I've worked with uh, who invested as individuals, um, you know, who worked maybe in the PE space, but just invested on their own. Right. Um, so I was, I was pretty fortunate uh, in that regard, but you know, the second you get done raising that first round, I mean, you know, then it was on to starting to figure out, okay, which VCs could be a fit for this business if we assume success, you know, so you start trying to figure out who's investing in the space. You know, I get like an email update from Axios every morning about some of the different VC deals that are going on. You just keep track of it and you say, all right, well, who's investing in e-com businesses? Who's investing in marketplace businesses? Who's investing in the retail space? And you just try to track who could potentially be a fit. And in addition to, you know, trying to network with folks in Chicago who have a bias towards investing in the Midwest. So there's, you know, geographical plays. There's, there's a lot of different angles, um, but it's, it's a pretty time consuming part of, uh, of the gig. Right. Well, you know, you, you, you spoke about, and I think it's a really important thing to, to mention is the importance of relationships. Just generally, I think people know that, that networking, having people in your, in your kind of circle that you can reach out to for help on certain things is helpful in any aspect of life. But I think for entrepreneurship, it's uniquely important for fundraising, for advice, for mentorship, all that stuff. So you know, maybe could you touch on how you go about keeping up your professional relationships over time? What is it, you know, even if you haven't spoken to someone in a couple months, in a year or two, um, you're not working directly with them anymore. How do you go about, you know, approaching them or keeping those up over time? And why is that so important? It, uh, well, it's definitively important. And I will say it's, it's not my, uh, not my strong suit. Um, I'm, if you guys have ever taken the, uh, the Myers-Briggs test, um, yeah, yeah. It, it was very eye-opening the first, I've taken it three times now and it's been interesting <laughs> to see how it's evolved in my career. Um, I am a, uh, an INTP and, uh, I am about as heavily introverted as you can get, um, and so, you know, I am one of those people who um, the idea of socializing and networking, et cetera, like it's just not my thing, uh, but it's good to be aware of it, right? So that way you can force yourself to go and do it anyways. Um, but like the, for me, mechanically, the way I've had to do is I actually have an Excel file uh, with like a list of people who I've thought it's worth keeping in touch with. And right. I'm not great about going back and checking it but I try to keep track of like, when's the last time I spoke to so-and-so and, and try to update that with some degree of frequency. Um, because yeah, it is lose, it is easy to lose touch with people, um, you know, over time, but I think, you know, trying to keep those up every, you know, six months, maybe even it's only once a year as you get going, I think it's really important. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, obviously it's, I, I think even just as a professional in almost any career, it's super important to, you know, build out your network. Um, 
But, you know, we talked about the fact that you raised capital and I was looking on your LinkedIn page. You got a few other people joining you now in the past few months uh, on this journey. So could you maybe talk about what the process was like going about the first couple of hires at the company, even just deciding like what roles do we need? Um, and, you know, obviously like finding the right people because uh, I feel like hiring uh, over, over all of the podcasts we've done with a lot of entrepreneurs, I feel like people re reiterate time and time again, like how important hiring is. It is, uh, it's mission critical, especially at a business at this stage, because you don't have a whole lot of room for getting it wrong. Um, you know, we have counting myself now, seven people. So if you whiff on one of those, that's pretty problematic. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, the first thing I did was like, I reached out to all my Soren buddies and was like, Hey, does anyone want to go do this? And I got a bunch of like, no's. So that was great. Um, <laughs> uh, although eventually one of them came back around. So our head of marketing is also uh, a Notre Dame guy. Uh, who's got a great um, kind of agency background and the marketing agency background and ultimately decided it was the right time in his career to, to make the jump. But um, yeah, so for me, what I did was I actually joined uh, 1871, which in Chicago is like a tech uh, startup hub. Mm -hmm. And they have a lot of great recruiting tools uh, that you can leverage by being a member and uh, what I did was uh, I kind of took the jobs. Let's, I'll go back to like, how do you decide which jobs? But I took the jobs that we, we decided we needed and, and posted them on 1871. And through that, you know, 1871 pushes out those jobs to LinkedIn, to Indeed, to like other job websites. And then I kind of get all those applicants back in one spot. And then from there, you know, it's sifting through resumes one by one and figuring out like who has the relevant experiences. And so um, the way I've described it is, you know, for a given role, I actually might get a hundred applicants. You know, a lot of people oh. like think they're interested in working at a startup. So you get a hundred applicants of those a hundred, there might only be 20 that I think are actually qualified for the job. Right. So you, you send out 20 introductory emails and then, you know, you wait. And of those 20, you maybe get 10 people who reply who you actually set up a phone screen with. And of those 10, you decide like, well, maybe only five of them really could be a fit. And of those five, there's always at least two or three who decide like, hey, I just, I'm not ready to go work at a startup. So you'd be shocked how 100 becomes like one or two pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're really filtering out people who are qualified, who could be a fit, and then you pack out like people who just don't want to work at a startup. So um, that process takes a tremendous amount of time out of the gates, mm -hmm. um, but that's how, how we did it. And, you know, for me, um, you know, in terms of which jobs do you need, I think it really starts with understanding your own skill set. So, uh, I'm a finance major. I have a lot of M&A background. I have kind of CPG background. I do not know anything about computer science. So, the first person who joined the team who we actually uh, did not announce it on LinkedIn yet because he's technically still at his other job. And we're kind of like stretching that out as long as we can. Um, <laughs> he's got uh, a Google, he was a senior product manager at Google. He's got uh, experience working at startup. He's a you know computer science major from Amherst, like really, really smart guy and knows a lot of stuff that I have no idea about. So like, as you think about building out the team, it's like, it's great to start with 
somebody who can rally around the vision of what this could be in the future, but also brings something totally unique to the table in his or her background, right? Mm-hmm. And so that was that was one of the first ones. And then you start thinking about, you know, mechanically, like what are some of the things that have to happen to make this work? And it's like, well, running the store has to be a thing. Well, I've never run a store. I don't have a traditional grocery or retail background. And so you know, the next person we hired, who also happens to be the other person who hasn't joined full time yet, because he's also working his job as long as possible. Uh, he's got an Aldi background. So he did store operations for Aldi, uh, you know, Kellogg MBA, Aldi store ops, aligned with the vision, like, okay, now there's another unique skill set that I don't, you know, I don't have that he brings to the table about what does best in class look like for store efficiency for you know, what does a labor model need to look like? What kind of talent do you need to hire for the store? How do you measure success? So, you know, I really think about it based on like skill sets and things that need to get done. And how do you build around the gaps that you might have as a, as a founder? Yeah, no, it's definitely a difficult process to even, you know, obviously decide the roles and then obviously, you know, find the the individuals to fill them. Um, I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about like actually, you know, you guys have like, you're trying to build stores, right? Um, what, what does that actually look like in terms of figuring out what your like key product or your store is going to be? Because uh, I feel like that, that's like a very capital intensive thing if you're opening up like physical locations. So I feel like it can be kind of difficult to decide like where do you start from like square one, you know? Um, whereas if you're starting, you know, I don't know if you had a, uh, a grocery store and then they wanted to do these like little outlet places, like they have the capital to like, go try something like that. Whereas like you guys are starting from like literally square one, you know? Yeah. There's definitely a a little bit of trial, trial and error. Um, and there's a little bit of like different variables kind of converge over time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, one of the big starting points is like, well, how much space do you need, right? Well, that's a function of like, how many SKUs are you going to carry? So, you, you know, like the blocking item in terms of, you know, steps is actually the assortment. So what does the assortment need to be? And so that was something we spent a lot of time on out of the gates is how many SKUs are we going to carry? So whereas like a traditional grocery store, like we'll take Jewel carries 30,000 SKUs, we're only going to carry 5,000, right? Now we get there though, by still providing the same variety that they do, we just don't carry it in every pack size. So the example I use a lot is Diet Coke. You go to a grocery store, how many different types of Diet Coke do you find in a grocery store? You've got the single at the checkout. You've got the 12 pack, the 24 pack, the two liter, the six pack of bottles, the six pack of the mini cans. It just kind of goes on and on, right? right? The online shopping journey is completely different. You know, you go into your app or the a website, you just type in Diet Coke and like, boom, there's a 12 pack. Maybe there's a two liter. That's all you really need for an online shopper, right? So, you know, that's one skew. Take that times the entire carbonated beverage category. Take that logic and apply it to categories like cereal where there are multiple pack sizes. And it's really quick. You can get 30,000 down to actually closer to like 4,000. And then we've kind of built it out a little bit further from there. Um, once you have that, then you can start to rally around like, okay, well, what size footprint do we need to support that? Assuming we want to carry, you know, X number of weeks of inventory on hand. And then, you know, so we're basically looking for 10 to 15,000 square feet at a time. And 
once you do that, you know, that, that kind of starts helping frame up what do you need to look for from a real estate perspective. And then, you know, there are different vendors who help with store design in terms of what kind of equipment do we need to support the assortment that we have. Um, but really the assortment was the starting point for all of it. Right. Well, and so uh, this wasn't really something we came up uh, asking, but when you talked about that skew um, kind of shrinkage, right? How do you guys work with your suppliers to make that happen really well? And how do you build relationships with suppliers originally starting as this kind of small company? How do you, um, you know, make people trust you and want to work with you when they, when, you know, they have Costco's, they have Wegmans, they have Whole Foods, they have all these huge companies uh, that they can just keep selling stuff to. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, it goes back actually to the earlier point around networking. So for example, for us, um, when we started down the path, I, I knew who all the largest distributors, wholesalers, suppliers are for groceries, right? You have UNFI, formerly Super Value. You have McLean, you have Cormark, you know, in Chicago, you have E.B. Brown. There's like, there's a bunch of different ones. Um, my, when I was in investment banking, uh, I had a counterpart in New York. So like when it was, you know, one in the morning and we're both still working, we'd call each other like, oh man, this really sucks. Like someday we won't be doing this anymore. <laughs> and uh, he subsequently left to go work in the private equity world. And through the fund that he is at right now, he got to know the president of UNFI, uh, who's the largest grocery distributor in the US. He made the introduction to me. Uh, Chris and I had a chance to meet, explained him the concept. He's super supportive. He put me in touch with the right people on his team and basically told them to give us whatever we needed to help get this off the ground. So again, an example where like, I had no idea that was going to be a thing, but just by virtue of keeping in touch with my buddy, Alex, like that became uh, a networking unlock for us. Um, And then, you know, one of the big things for the concept is you think about delivering the promise of having like no out of stocks being really important for us and, you know, just consistent product availability, you really need to have backup suppliers for every SKU you carry. Right. So, you know, the last, however many years I've been in, you know, the CPG world, you know, we've worked really closely with McLean. So I know, I know a lot of people over there from my past job, um, you know, responsible for the sales team at Ferrara. And so, you know, when I go to them and I say, Hey, look, I'm doing this new startup, blah, blah, blah. They know who I am. They understand my background. And there's a level of credibility that comes to that with that versus just, you know, sending a cold call email into a help desk. Right. Yeah, no, I, I, I just can't, you know, stress, I think, to anyone listening, like how important it really is to just be aware of the people you're working with. You don't have to go out of your way to be really, uh, you know, intensely networking on a professional level, but just being aware, I think, is such a great, um, a great skill to have, the thing to, be, to, to, to remember while you're working. But so now, Michael, you know, we just kind of touched on a lot of different aspects of Fresh Street. Um, but to wrap up on that topic, you know, what does the timeline look like for Fresh Street as you progress? Um, what's your long-term vision for the company? Where do you see it going, you know, 10 years from now? What's your dream? Where would you have it? Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, they say every journey starts with a step. So step one is get the first store open. And the goal is to have it open March 1st. Um, I think realistically sometime in March is when it'll be open. Um, there's a lot of complicated things that have to come together to get to hit March one, but that's what we're shooting for. Um, you know, one of the important things for me and my role with the business is not losing sight of everything that we want to do afterwards. And so I'm continuing to look at other properties, 
and building out that pipeline of other places we can go next, you know? So what I keep saying is like, we want to get to 10 in Chicago as soon as we can. And, you know, from there, you know, then it's just about, you know, which markets do we think about entering next and how fast can we get to a hundred and can we ever get to a thousand? Um, you know, I think you go into something like this because you want to build, you know, and I think if you, there's a lot of people who go into, um, the startup world, you have this vision of like, oh, I want to build something so I can sell it to somebody for a bunch of money in two years. And then I'm going to be on a beach somewhere. And like, that doesn't sound terrible, but like, that's not like for me, that's interesting, but that's not sufficient, you know? And I'd love to be at a place someday where this is a hundred plus stores, a thousand stores. And, you know, maybe we're doing the ones doing the buying, but ultimately it comes down to, you know, can you solve problems for people? Right. Because we've talked a lot about like, Hey, you know, I think it's widely acknowledged that the online grocery shopping experience today is suboptimal for a variety of, of reasons. Um, you know, not consistent product availability and out of stock substitute items being one pricing and fees being another. Um, and there's many more, but you know, there's also some other real issues that this type of model can solve for particularly around food deserts in you know, in Chicago, specifically on the south side of the city or the west side of the city, where we have this really efficient labor model in the store, and we can provide, you know, accessible, you know, healthy food to some of these communities where you see other retailers walking away. And so there's some other bigger problems, I think, that this type of business can solve for once we get it off the ground and demonstrate some proof of concept. Yeah, absolutely. Obviously a lofty goal, but, you know, I feel like as an entrepreneur, you got to be, you know, super optimistic and shoot for the stars, right? Yeah. Um, There's a podcast I was listening to and I forget the guy's name, but you said recklessly optimistic. Yeah. And I think that that definitely resonates (laughs) with me. (laughs) That's awesome. Um, The last question we wanted to ask Mike, uh, you know, a lot of the questions we ask on the podcast are usually pretty professional um, and how people got to where they are and, you know, what they're shooting for, but we've never really asked people about how they balance kind of their professional and personal lives. And, you know, I know you mentioned that you have a kid before uh, we hopped on the podcast, but could you maybe talk about how you, you try to find some balance there? I know a lot of people, especially as a lot of my friends say, consider are considering going into say a career in like private equity where tons of hours or being an entrepreneur, tons of hours, it can be kind of difficult to you know, understand how to even find that balance if it exists. So, you know, if you could provide some insight into how you try to at least have it a little bit, that'd be yeah. super helpful. Yeah. Um, I can just tell you how I think about it, whether it's right or wrong, this is kind of how I do it. So, you know, I always say your day is a pie chart and, you know, you get to decide how to allocate those hours. And for me, you know, I want to be involved in our kids' lives. Um, Sometimes that's easier than other times, uh, you know, but I've tried my best to like try to, you know, coach the, the youth soccer team that just runs around in a big group chasing the ball and, <laughs> you know, coach my daughter's softball team, even though she doesn't really have any genuine interest in softball and really is more interested in me coaching. So, you know, you try to carve out time for those things, but you have to be intentional. You know, you have to say, okay, like, you know, this day of the week, like, 
Ava's got softball practice and like, I got to be home by five 30 and like, no matter what's going on, like that's the priority. Um, and I do think that's one of the things you have to consider as you choose a career is if I was in the services industry, you know, so for example, I, I thought long and hard about working at McKinsey for a period of time. Cause I actually find that work really intellectually stimulating. And I like the variety that that provides, but you know, one, on the one hand, like, I just know that I'm not wired to be anything other than the client. Like I operate on my own time in my own way. And I would struggle with being on somebody else's time. So that was never going to be a fit, but you just lose control of your schedule when you're in that type of industry. Right. And that applies not only to consulting, but it applies to law. It applies to public accounting. Like ultimately you're a service provider to someone else. And like, if you're going to be in those industries, you're going to lose control over your schedule a bit versus being, you know, more on the operating side where, you know, if you're the client, right, putting it, reversing the script, what, you know, hey, guys, sorry, I can't do a meeting at five tonight because I've got this other thing I got to go do. Like you have control over your schedule in that regard. Right. So, you know, I, I would say that, you know, I would be disingenuous to say when I made the switch to going to the operating side of things, that that was why I did it. I did it because I wanted to be a CEO. But I will say one of the uh, benefits that I probably underestimated was you do have more control over your schedule and you do have the ability to you know make sure you're home for dinner and the ability to say, okay, well, after I put the kids in bed, I'm going to pick up my work again and I'm going to work you know from 9.30 to 10.30 on all this other stuff that I didn't get done. But I was at least present you know, from six o'clock till nine o'clock when my kids went to bed. And, you know, you just have to be super intentional about, about making time for those things because it's very easy to get sucked into work, um, depending on what you choose to do. Now, I'm talking about myself as somebody who has ambitions to go build stuff and do, you know, hopefully someday meaningful things with my career. There's a whole nother model, which is like, you know, I view work as, part of who I am as a person. Um, you know, my wife's a teacher. I view her being a teacher as being part of who she is in her, in her DNA, right? There are other ways of looking at work, which is like some people look at work because it's just the thing that pays their bills, right? And it's very transactional. And like when they leave work at five, they don't want to think about it until 9 a.m. the next morning. And that's okay. Like there's nothing wrong with that. That will lead you to different careers, and it will lead you to make different career decisions. So, you know, you also kind of think you have to think about your job in terms of like, what are you really trying to get out of work? Like if you're trying to get out of it, you know, the ability to pay off your student loans and your rents and those things, but you're just like going to have a grand old time. That's awesome. You should go do that. That's going to lead you one direction, right? If you want to go be a CEO someday, like it's going to mean you're going to have to work a little bit differently with a little bit of a different work ethic to get to where you want to go. Um, so, you know, that's another thing that people have to consider is where does work fit in for you? Um, so hopefully that's somewhat constructive. No, that's perfect. Yeah. yeah. No, I think it's, it's such an important thing to consider. I know a lot of people get on a path and then they look up 10 years later and they're like, what did I, where, where am I? Why am I here? But I think what you mentioned in the beginning, like, you know, try and understand where you want to be and then set yourself up to get there um, kind of fits in with that nicely. And I just think it's a really important question to ask yourself um, as you're looking at making decisions regarding your career, because that's such a big part of everyone's life. Um, 
but that that kind of wraps up our uh, you know main questions that we had. But we always finish up with a kind of rapid fire question section, just five questions, um, not really pertaining directly to your career, but you can they, you can make them pertain to your career if you want them to. Um, and so we'll we'll kind of hop into that, and they're a little more uh, a little more lighthearted. Sure. So you know, first one we have here is what is a book that you're reading right now, or what's a book you've read um, in the past couple of years that you'd recommend to people listening. Yeah, a book that I have read that I would recommend everyone to read uh, is Outliers uh, by uh, Malcolm Gladwell. Um, I'm a big Malcolm Gladwell fan. Uh, I love his podcast too, uh, Revisionist History, um, mainly right. because I've always felt like it's good to think about things that you wouldn't traditionally think about at work when you're outside of work. And, um, you know, one of the things I liked about outliers is just this notion that like, there's a lot of reasons why someone's successful beyond all the things that we intrinsically see in ourselves. And so, you know, I look at myself, I'm like, well, I grew up in a small town in upstate New York. Like I didn't, you know, have any connections to Notre Dame. I was very fortunate to get in. I worked really hard while I was there. I worked really hard when I was in investment banking. I just work, 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 work. That's great you know, outliers, it starts making you think a little bit more about like all these other factors outside of me uh, that really enabled me to be successful, you know, in today's day and age, not the least of which is the fact that I'm a white male. So, you know, there's things like that, that I think were pretty eye-opening as you think about um, that book. And I, I really enjoyed that. Yeah. That's one of my favorite books. <laughs> Great one. Cool. All right. Well, second question um, is, what is a skill that you are trying to develop right now or that you'd like to develop or maybe what's an area you'd like to learn more about? And again, it does not have to be related to anything professional at all. Yeah, I'm trying to teach myself to how to play piano. I have a six-year-old son who's taking piano lessons and I, I try to stay one song ahead of him, but uh, it's getting a lot, getting a lot harder. Right. I think it's funny. I've had a couple of people say uh, piano or just like a decent amount of people saying some sort of instrument, um, which takes me back when I was like in fourth grade, I guess, same, you know, same time as your son. Um, and the next question is, you know, how do you stay up to date maybe with some of the latest developments in uh, your industry? So I guess that could be kind of in the grocery industry or maybe that's entrepreneurship generally. Um, and what are some new sources that you'd recommend? Yeah, I think Axios does a really nice job with that. I get like a few different morning emails every day. Uh, from Axios about things going on, whether that's um, in politics, in the markets, in fundraising, um, and that's been really my go-to. Awesome. Uh, next one is, who is one of your favorite CEOs, um, someone you looked up to, and this could be a current CEO somewhere or someone from the past? Oh, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think it would be hard to look past you know, who's had the most impact on my career in an immediate sense, which is, you know, uh, Todd Seawalk has been uh, the CEO for me for, you know, the last 10 years. So he was an operating partner at Catterton who uh, recruited me to go work at Yo Crunch with him as the interim, where he was the interim CEO. And then he's been the CEO at Ferrara while I was there. And, um, you know, I think all of us, like, we need to have a little bit of a break in our careers to break through, you know, there's going to be someone who, who really gives you that first chance to do something meaningful. And I was very lucky that uh, Todd did that for me at a pretty early stage in my career. And, you know, he took a chance on me when he didn't need to. And, um, 
I've, I've learned so much from him. He's just such, he's been such a phenomenal CEO, but, um, you know, he's really an entrepreneur at heart. And so I think, you know, he's, he's like the most near in sort of answer for me. Uh, but I, I've always had this philosophy that like, you can learn from everyone, um, like both good and bad. So, you know, I think, you know, there are things that you can take even for as crazy as he is, like from a Ray Dalio that I think are really fascinating. There's other things you think about somebody who's completely different, like in Howard Schultz, like I think Howard Schultz is a great CEO. And there are some things that he's done that I find really fascinating, particularly around, you know, relevant for me, right? The user, the, you know, the Starbucks consumer at the time, but like, it's all about the experience, right? And like that myopic focus enables all these other great business outcomes. And so there's things you can pull from that. And so, um, you know, you go back to books, uh, Shoe Dogs about uh, Phil Knight, great book, great CEO. Um, so he's another one that's up there. Awesome. All right. So last one we have here in this section is, you know, now that COVID, uh, well, it looks like maybe things are going back. Um, so maybe, maybe we need to change this question now, but given that it was looking a little better, um, you know, and, and travel was starting to open up, uh, if you could go anywhere, travel anywhere in the world right now, um, where would you like to go? Yeah. So we, uh, we, and hopefully we'll be able to keep the trip. Uh, we booked a trip to go to Disney with the kids oh, awesome. <laughs> uh, in December and it's our first time getting on a plane since COVID. Wow. So yeah, luckily our big two were able to get vaccinated. Um, they just got their second dose yesterday. So uh, hopefully we'll be able to, uh, to start traveling in a more normal way, but there is, uh, when you get to be a little older, there's, there's nothing more fun than watching your kids have fun. Right. And, uh, Disney's a pretty magical place. Uh, so, and obviously, you know, Disney world in Florida, not Disneyland. Cause that's, <laughs> that's great. Yeah. No, I, uh, my, my dad loves Disney. And so he used to take us there all the time. We were little, um, and he, he still, he still looks for any excuse to try and get us there. He, his, his, his mom. <laughs> yeah. It's fun out. as an adult. It's you. Know, you can go around the world at Epcot. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. Uh, all right. Well, Mike, that's uh, that's kind of wrapping up everything we had. We're super happy. No, uh, no Brian Kelly questions. <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> well, now you ask. What do you think about Brian Kelly? You know, I here's what I would say is that I am very excited for Marcus Freeman. Agreed. I think that Marcus Freeman's going to be the guy that gets us over the hump. You know, if you think about the last however many years since Kelly took over 12 years, I think you got to give him credit for getting, taking the program where it was like when I was at school, the Weiss years and getting it to a place of consistency. Um, but I think the same things that helped Brian Kelly get us to that, you know, 10 plus wins five, you know, five years in a row, that, that um, sort of corporate medicinal feeling and way of coaching is the same reason why we haven't been able to break through. Mm. So when I think about what Marcus Freeman's about to do for the school with recruiting, with, you know, being an energetic leader of young and, you know, developer of young men, you know, to me, that's more along the lines of like what you see from Dabo Sweeney and Clemson, where, you know, you watch Dabo in the locker room and I, you know, I almost want to run through a brick wall for him, right? <laughs> Tell me when the last time you saw that from a Brian Kelly halftime speech. Um, and I think, unfortunately, the way he left reels a, a lot about his character. Um, 
which is which is tough to swallow. And I, you know, it is what it is. But you know, for me, more than anything, I look at everything that's transpired this week, and I feel like the program is going to be in the absolute best possible place. I I also would say that, you know, I'm a huge Tommy Reese fan. Right. I always have been, even when he was quarterback here and he had his ups and downs. But I think Tommy is the kind of guy you want here. Like you want people at Notre Dame who want to be at Notre Dame. So if Brian Kelly doesn't want to be here, then that's great. Like he should go because Marcus Freeman wants to be here and he's going to recruit the heck out of, you know, this next generation of athletes. And he's going to bring in talent that Brian Kelly was never going to be able to bring in. Um, so I'm very excited to have a young energetic, passionate black head coach at Notre Dame, one of only, you know, two schools in the top 25 with a black head coach right now. And that's something that I'm super excited about. I, I, I agree with you. I think it's a, I think we have a good, I think we're in a good position to go forward with Freeman and, and Tommy and everyone we got going on. So, yeah, um, absolutely. All right. Yeah, well, that's I think it's also telling, right. That none of the other coaches went with him. Right. Yeah. Right. I heard he got chewed out. <laughs> yeah. I heard that everyone's upset with him because he didn't give anyone a heads up. Like yes. everybody's like, what are you doing? Yep. So anyways, just another day. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I mean, no better way to wrap up a podcast with three Notre Dame uh, um, students and alums. So uh, I think that's a perfect way to wrap up here. Great. Um, Thanks guys. Appreciate you having me. Yeah, no, again, it was, it was super, super good to have you on and I uh, hope everyone learned a lot from talking here. All right, so that's going to wrap up this episode with Mike Sales. Uh, we hope everyone enjoyed that little conversation at the end. If you're a Notre Dame fan or a Notre Dame alum uh, or just like college football, you probably knew about what was going on with Brian Kelly leaving. So Mike had a lot to say there. Uh, we really did enjoy talking about that for a little bit. We do want to just, you know, again, point out a couple of things that we thought were really important from this conversation. We're not going to do a debrief. We don't think there was too much stuff that was technical or too much language that was extremely complex. But... The, the five couple things that we think are, are really important to take away from this conversation is, you know, looking at your career discernment and exploring options there, figuring out your priorities and trying to create a path. And we do want to add, we think a mentor is a fantastic way to do that. So definitely reach out to people in your networks. Operational experience also is something that was touched on a lot. And as Mike said, it's extremely valuable as a CEO or manager. So, uh, you know, if you if that's something you're considering, definitely seek that out. In terms of networking and building relationships, we think that's a great topic of discussion. Uh, young people um, are confused and maybe a little bit scared to, to start that process, but uh, it's going to be invaluable to you later in life, so do not uh, delay that. In terms of hiring, you know, Mike talked about that too. Definitely be picky about hires. You can't, um, you can't stress how important it is those, couple first those first couple employees um, at, a, at a startup specifically are super important. And last is just balancing your life and your work. Uh, and, and in that, your intentions really matter. Set your intentions and, and, and be purposeful about making them come true. So with that summary out of the way, we do hope you guys all enjoyed this episode. Definitely go check out some of our existing ones. And as we said in the beginning, follow us on LinkedIn and Spotify. That's the best way to stay up to date with what we're doing. And we hope to see you next time.